This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. with Wharton and Penn Med professor David Ash to talk about his research on behavioral economics and how they can help us develop better health incentive programs for employees. David, thanks for being here today. Well, thanks for inviting me. So can you give us a brief overview of your research? Sure. Well, I mean, I think the background is this, that for so many American companies and American employers, even if they're not in the healthcare business, health is central to what they do because it keeps their workforce healthy and because, frankly, healthcare costs have an incredible impact on their bottom line. Everybody knows that health is determined so much by individual human behavior, and we now have much better ways of motivating that behavior from principles of behavioral economics, principles that, frankly, employers, I think, have been a little slow to adopt. And so what are some of the key takeaways from your research in terms of how employers could use these principles to design better health incentive programs? Sure. Well, I mean, I think one... one, comment would be to back up a little bit and say, well, what are they doing? And I think so much of our approach to health, actually, whether it's from a doctor approaching health care or an employer or an HR group thinking about wellness for their employees, is based on the principle of education. We should just educate employees that smoking is bad for them and that fitness is good for them and they should be adherent to their medications. It's a very rational model that assumes that if our employees only knew what to do, they would do that. And, and as soon as you say those words, you realize how limited that approach really is because, of course, people do know that smoking is bad for them, but it's very hard to quit or they, they start up smoking in the first place. They know they should take their medications. So giving them education rarely is going to be enough to move the needle. And yet so many em- programs that employers use are fundamentally based on that. The next level that employers use actually is thinking about economic incentives. Why don't we give a reduction in a health insurance premium or some kind of pay-for-performance approach to get employees to move forward? And there is some evidence that that works. But the work that we do has been largely focused on different kinds of arrangements to help motivate either employees on the employer side or patients in the clinical setting, because I'm a physician, to try to get people to, to take better care of their health, recognizing the psychological foibles and pitfalls uh, that we all fall into. So if I'm an employer and I'm trying to design an effective health incentive program, what are some conclusions from your research that might be of a surprise to me as I'm sitting down trying to design this plan? Yeah, so a lot of the results are surprising, and they're surprising because they're sort of irrational. In fact, they take advantage of the fact that many of us don't think in rational ways. So here's an example of a recent study that we did. It was led by a colleague, Mitesh Patel, also a colleague, Kevin Volpe, and I, we did this with a group of employees to try to get them to walk more. And we, we, ran, we did a randomized control trial, real science, thinking how can we get employees to walk at least 7,000 steps a day? One group got uh, was a control in, uh, group. They just were given feedback about how far they walked. Some groups were paid. In this case, we paid them up to a dollar. We paid them a dollar forty a day for every day in which they walked seven thousand steps. A third group uh, got actually what we would call a loss framed incentive, exactly the same amount of money. A dollar forty a day is forty two dollars a month. What we did is we gave them $42 a month in a virtual account before it started, and we took $1.40 back for every day they didn't walk 7,000 steps. Now, mathematically, those two incentive arms are the same, right? $1.40 gain if you walk or the failure to lose $1.40 
um, if, if you walk. The same thing. It turns out those who got the gain incentive that were promised $1.40 for walking didn't walk any more than the control group. The group that got the same $1.40 framed as a loss incentive walked 50% more than the control group. It's irrational. It doesn't make any sense. It's the truth, real data that shows that, and it's consistent with theories of behavioral economics, but inconsistent with how a lot of employers or doctors think about the best way to take care of their patients. So what are some of the underlying forces here in terms of, like, that's at work here? Like, if we're thinking about this, like, if I'm not necessarily doing walking, but I'm doing any sort of incentive program or any sort of employee health program, how can I think about this using behavioral economics to kind of design something that will make people, that will actually get the result that I want, which is healthier employees? Like, what are some of these irrational ways of thinking, maybe, that would help me out? Like, how would I do the best, what is the best way that you find to do incentives? What is the best way to sort of make people do the things that we all know we should do, but that doesn't mean we're going to do them? Yeah. I mean, I think you just phrased it perfectly. How do we do the things we all know we should do, but don't do it anyway? And as soon as you say that, you realize what strategies you have to use because it's not going to be the rational one because you just gave a very rational argument. Of course, I should do this. And the rational view is, well, then I do it. But of course, that's not what really happens. So you have to move beyond the typical education. I'm not against education. I'm a professor. I'm in the business of education. But it can be a bit of a decoy when when something more effective might be in, in reach. And so I think the answer to your question, the more direct answer to your question, is to think, well, what are the pitfalls we normally fall into? So one of them is that I just mentioned, we see losses as more potent than gains. Mm-hmm. So let's see how we can frame things as losses. Another pitfall is that objects right in front of us, our goals right in front of us, are so much more salient, so much more meaningful than things far in the distance, right? This is why we don't save for retirement enough. It's why we eat that piece of chocolate cake right in front of us, even though we're on a diet. It's why we don't take our blood pressure medicine, even though we desperately want to avoid a stroke that might happen years later. All of these things reflect errors in which we focus too much on the present and not enough on the future. How do we fix that? Well, can we accelerate the benefits? Can we create incentives today for taking my antihypertensive, incentives today for not eating the chocolate cake, incentives today for going to the gym, not the incentive we would normally get, which is a you know thinner, uh, healthier person 10 years from now or several months from now. And financial incentives are a way to do that, but there may be other incentives too, social incentives, right? If I if I set up a system to go to the gym with a buddy, right? You don't, we don't need research to tell us this. People are more likely to go to the gym if they've made a little pact with a buddy to show up because you feel guilty if you don't show up. Those are sort of social incentives. Those are very powerful also. And yet in healthcare, we often think of healthcare as so private that we don't want to engage two people together with it. But we do that with so many other aspects of our life. And going to the gym or taking your medicines, it's really not that private. So one misperception I thought that with the research address that I thought was very interesting is this idea of, you know, like you said, education is obviously important. And it's obviously important to be transparent about what you're offering someone or what you're doing. But at the same time, one of the things I think the research gets at that's very interesting and a misperception it kind of corrects is this idea of sometimes it is possible to give people too much information, to maybe throw too much at them that they actually miss what you're actually trying to tell them or get them to do. Absolutely. And and so <laughs> there is like a, a fine line between enough information and, and too much information. I think the best example for that are the very health insurance plans that employers, you know, give to their employees. So uh, it's April right now. The University of Pennsylvania has open 
season, you know, uh, benefits open season. I've got to do that. I think it's actually due tomorrow or something. And um, I have to select a bunch of health, uh, I have to select the best health care plan for me and my family. Well, at Penn, I spent 15 years as the director of the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics. I have to think of myself as someone pretty knowledgeable about health insurance and health benefits, and I can't figure out what the best health insurance is for me and my family. And the reason is, is that there are these complicated tables of deductibles and co-payments and out-of-pocket maxima and HSAs and all these other kinds of things. Each one of those is a financial incentive designed to try to help me move my health care in a particular direction. But I would submit that a set of financial incentives you don't understand is a set of financial incentives that can't be effective. It's just too complicated. I think we, gr- we need to greatly simplify our, almost, our approach designed largely by economists and actuaries and turn it into an approach that's understandable by humans. Now, I feel like sometimes maybe the companies don't do this because they feel like they're going to insult people's intelligence. Like, of course you can figure this out. Of course you want all this information. But maybe really people don't. They just want to know what's best for them really in the end is what they want to know. Yeah. I don't think it should be insulting. I mean, you know, I think I know a lot about health insurance, and yet it's just complicated, and I'm busy. And it's not about cognitive demand um, or, uh, you know, cognitive ability. It's just more about, like, we should be making it easy for people and not rely on their ability to handle hard things. Lots of our employees are smart, and they can handle hard things, but why should we rely on that? We should be making it easy. And I think so much of behavioral economics is about that also. How do we make it so that it's easier to walk? How do we make it so that it's easier to take your antihypertensive medications to lower your blood pressure? Why do we have co-payments for um, uh, uh, antihypertensives? They're not drugs of abuse. No one's going to go and take lots of blood pressure medicines for the fun of it. We want people to take their blood pressure medicines. Why do we make it so hard for them to get that medication? And I think that there, once we take a step back, we can find lots of things that we're doing that don't have a good reason psychologically, right? We, could, we should be defaulting patients into automatic refill plans so they don't run out of their medications and fall off the wagon. We should be, you know, there are lots of approaches. Once we recognize what are the steps required for certain goals and what are the psychological pitfalls that we all have as we approach those goals. Now, I mean, health incentive programs, I mean, have really been in, I mean, if not the news, they're sort of in our cultural lexicon now. It seems like every company has them. And if they're not, they're probably going to have one next year or the year after that. So as companies are adopting these things, I mean, do you think people – are companies being thoughtful enough when they're adopting these things or are they kind of being adopted in a vacuum without thinking about the particular particulars of that company, of that company's employee population or about some of the things you're talking about, about how do we design a program that doesn't just work for the short term to get us what we want but actually makes for people who are healthier in the long term? Yeah. So it is about oh, – more, more than 80 percent of uh, U.S. companies are using some form of financial incentive to promote the health of their uh, employees and or their spouses and dependents and the like. So it is widespread. It's probably going to grow more than that. Now, what I think is interesting – and I, here I, I don't want to be too insulting, but I, I think that a lot of employers are not using these techniques as efficiently as they could. And one of the reasons is, you know, as I've alluded to, is they've got almost too rational a perspective. They, the assumption is, well, I'm using – economics to improve behavior, therefore I'm doing behavioral economics. That's not behavioral economics. That's economics, right? Paying someone to do something is a highly transactional approach. It becomes behavioral economics and much more potent when you use psychological tricks that that require these little clever design elements. And actually, that's not widely understood. Those those little tricks 
um, you know, take, take some experience. And it turns out that subtle differences, as I mentioned, the framing of a reward as a gain or a loss, a very subtle difference, can, can have a huge impact. So unless you know what you're doing, it's actually hard to make use of behavioral economics in the workplace. So what would you say sets this research apart from other research con- that's being conducted on this topic? So, um, you know, there isn't a lot of work that is currently being done in behavioral economics and health that combines work in the wellness space. How do I get people to walk more or to lose weight with our insights from really clinical medicine? How do I get someone who actually already has an illness, let's say um, uh, congestive heart failure, and gets them to stay out of the hospital? And so the, the, the acknowledgement that we can learn um, something from both of those settings and combine them. Now, if you're an employer, for example, it's easy and comfortable to think about wellness, but actually wellness is not going to save you a lot of money in your employee group. It's not where the money is. The money is in the very few employees that you have who have some serious illnesses. And so the ability to improve the health and health care of those employees is going to have a much larger effect on your bottom line than the important, but I would say highly diluted effects of, of, of the wellness activities for your employees. Great. And so what's next for your research? What are you, where are you going to go from here? So um, we've done a lot of work on uh, the use of financial incentives to motivate people. And again, financial incentives that are designed with psychology in mind, not just transactionally. And um, there's been tremendous success in identifying ways to manipulate financial incentives to motivate employees. I think we're increasingly interested in using social incentives. People sometimes freak out about it. Financial incentives, are you paying people to lose weight or to stop smoking? can seem a little creepy or like a little bit of a nanny state. But actually, I think people are much more motivated by the social interactions that they have. They, they want to feel good among their colleagues. They don't want to be a dead weight. They care what other peop- people think about them. And to the extent that we can harness those very legitimate um, and very pro-social emotions and apply them to health settings, I think we can advance individual and population health forward a lot. One of the barriers to that has been, as I mentioned, that people have often thought of health and healthcare as very, very private. But if you were to Watch what people say about themselves on Twitter or on Facebook. You would realize in an instant that actually people are quite open about their health. And I think that privacy is important, but honestly, it's probably not as important as many people think it is. David, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.